Good morning again. I'd like to ask for you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. I have a long history with boats. I grew up with a boat in our family, and uh, most weekends in the summer, we would make our way to Big Hill Lake in Cherryvale, Kansas, and uh, we had a great deal of fun. Most of the time, we would go tubing, and if you're not familiar with that, that is a water sport in which my father, who was a chiropractor, would do his very best to pulverize us kids with extreme turns and wake jumping so that he would have some bones to put back into place that night. Needless to say, I've spent a lot of time in a boat, but I've also spent a lot of time in the water. However, if you look at a map of the world, one thing that you'll notice is that Kansas, where I am from, is geographically just about as far away from an ocean as you can get. In fact, if you compare it to anywhere else in the world, you'll find that comparatively, it, there are very few places on the globe that are farther away from an ocean body of water. <clears throat> There's always an intrinsic danger of being thrown off a tube or off of a boat into the water, but there is something very different about being flipped off of an inner tube in a lake and being capsized in the ocean. Yesterday, a train crashed in India, killing almost 300 people so far and injuring about 900 more. When we want to describe something as incredibly destructive or as a powerful failure in our modern-day diction, we call it a train wreck. And we do that because those are so deadly and cataclysmic that it is a perfect analogy for whatever it is that's taking place in front of us. Well, in today's in Paul's day, rather, they didn't have trains and they didn't have train wrecks. Instead, they used the metaphor of shipwreck to be one of the most extreme and deadly disasters imaginable. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul states that there were some people in Ephesus who had made train wreck, or I'm sorry, not train wreck, shipwreck of their faith. 900 people walked away from the train wreck in India. When that boat capsized in the sea in the first century, how many people normally survived? They, recommend, or they suggest that there was a less than 1% survival rate of ships that capsized at sea. Today, if you actually look at the data, it's not much better. If you are in an ocean-going vessel and that vessel goes down in the middle of the ocean, it is highly likely that you go down with it. Yet, in the providence of God, in our passage today, we are going to see that the Lord saved 276 people from nautical disaster. That is well more than is in this entire building today. So I'd like to ask that before we approach the text, you would join me one more time in bowing our hearts before the Lord and asking for his favor on what we're about to do now. Lord God, we do come before you. I specifically come before you asking for help today to proclaim the word faithfully, that you would give me the right things to say in the right moments in such a way that it would be impactful and memorable, that it would be compassionate and passionate, that it would be destructive to harboring sin and it would be encouraging to those who are discouraged and weak. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of the preaching of your word today, that by your Holy Spirit, you would inhabit the praises of your people. For Lord, as we hear, we celebrate what you have done. And as we hear, we are reminded of your power. And as we hear, we are considering your love for us. And so Father, I pray that today, this moment would be a time of immense worship from your people. And I ask that Lord, you would also transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, 
Amen. The approach that we're going to employ today is very simple. We're just going to digest this extensive tra travel narrative by way of running commentary. However, as we make our way through the text, I'm going to pause at five different points to highlight a sharp contrast that exists. One of the sharpest contrasts imaginable, and that is the contrast between the way a Christian should operate and the way that the world operates. Now, one of the key words that I've just stated is the word should, the way that a Christian should operate. One of the reasons that the Lord has given for regular and consistent preaching is that we do not always do what we should. Even if we know it, we forget it. We stop acting upon it. And so today we're going to consider five simple distinctions of ways that Christians should be operating in the face of the watching world. If you have your own copy of scriptures, please follow along starting in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. God's word reads, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramentium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now, there are some pieces of the story that we don't have given to us by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of detail that must have taken place in this prisoner transfer that we just aren't given privy information to. But you can likely infer a lot of what happened by the way that Paul is being treated by Julius. You'll remember the last time that we were in Acts, Paul claimed his citizenship's right to a trial by Nero. Both Agrippa and Festus agreed that Paul had done nothing wrong and that he could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. But as they said, you have appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you shall go. However, when Paul was transferred into the custody of Julius, he was clearly not labeled as a flight risk or as a dangerous insurrectionist. How do we know that? Because Julius not only allows Paul to bring two guests with him, Aristarchus and Luke, he also allowed Paul to leave Roman custody while they were at port so that he could be cared for by fellow believers. That is shocking. One thing that um, British sailors used to do when they were brought into ports back in England after they had been pressed into service is that the, the sailors who had been pressed into service were not allowed to leave the ship while their boat was at the island where they were from. Because if they did go to port, they would never see them again. You don't let them go. So the captain of the ship would make sure, if you're Irish, you don't get off the boat in Ireland. If you are British, you don't get off the boat in Britain. You stay on the boat. Well, what do they do with a prisoner? They let the guy walk. And he goes into the city and gets cared for by his friends. This is not the only time in history that this takes place. Earlier, I, I spoke to you about Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, the author of that, was in prison for many years. In fact, he wrote most of Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. And while he was in prison for being a believer in Jesus Christ and not being Roman Catholic, he was allowed by the prison guards on many Sundays to leave and go preach at a church. And then he would come back and voluntarily put himself back into chains. Imagine how much credibility Paul gained with Julius when he did not just disappear. In fact, I almost wonder if Julius 
had spoken to these other officials, to people like Agrippa and Felix, and had realized that this guy really isn't a bad guy. What are we doing here? And maybe he heard them say he could have been released if, we, if he just didn't appeal to Rome. It's his own cause that is causing him to go there. And maybe he was saying to himself, let's just let him go, and then maybe we won't have to take him. Maybe he's a, he's a good guy. Maybe he'll just disappear. And then he won't have to go talk to that psychopath, Nero. Maybe that's what's going on. But what happens? Paul, knowing that the Lord has already told him, you must go to Nero, walks back to the boat and walks back into captivity voluntarily. Verse 5. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centuria found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Sinitus, <clears throat> as the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Now, this is really interesting because every single mention of their travels is spoken about with difficulty. It was hard. This was not a simple trip. The winds were against them the entire time. When your primary form of propulsion is the wind and the wind is blowing the opposite direction, that makes for a slow journey. And the ship stopped in this place called Fair Havens, which is smack dab in the center of the southern side of the island of Crete. And the crew at this point was likely exhausted. They were probably completely wiped out. They had probably been using oars to try to straighten the boat against the wind. They were taking the, the sails up and down and furling them and unfurling them every time the wind was favorable to them, even in the slightest bit, to try to gain an inch in the right direction. They must have been exhausted. And because it took longer than the trip was supposed to, their supplies were likely exhausted. So it was time to stop and it was time to take a break at Fair Havens. Since much time passed, verse 9, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So now we have arrived at the first point of distinction that I'd like to highlight between how the world operates and how a Christian should operate. Namely, that the world operates with expediency, but the Christian should operate with wisdom. Look, Paul was not a sailor. He doesn't even pretend to be a sailor. But he did know enough about sailing to point out the obvious fact that sailing at this time of year was known to be dangerous. It wasn't a surprise to anyone that this was true. Luke tells us that it was after the feast, meaning after the feast of Yom Kippur, that feast concludes as early as September 24th, but as late as November 3rd, and all we know about this is it occurred after that time. This was known to be the time of year that winds would sweep down across the European continent and bring immense amounts of rain with them, but also dangerous winds as the cold air from the Alps would come down and it would collide with the hot air that was coming up from North Africa. Now, 
I lived in Kansas, as I've already told you today, and that is known as Tornado Alley. Why do tornadoes exist? It's because the cold air from Canada comes down along the, the mountain range in the center of our country, the Rockies, and it collides with the hot air that's coming up from the Gulf of Mexico. And when it collides, it creates immense am amounts of turmoil in the form of tornadoes and windstorms. It doesn't become tornadoes often over the Mediterranean Sea, but it often does produce forms of cyclones and very treacherous windstorms. Paul knows that's what's coming. Paul didn't need to be a genius to see the impending danger, and neither do you. When the world is careening at a breakneck speed in the direction of certain disaster, it is the role of believers to be the voice of reason and common sense in the room. Notice that Paul never claims that his concerns were directives from the Lord. He never says, God told me. In fact, we know God did not tell him this because he said, I think if we go now, people are going to die. And of course, we'll see at the end of this passage, nobody dies, indicating that God did not tell him this. He was coming up with this on his own. It is wisdom that he knew we should not go to see now. And he sees the weather patterns. And God has provided us with much wisdom, wisdom that we can learn naturally, and even better, we have wisdom that is provided for us in the Scripture. Just read chapters 1 through 31 of Proverbs, and you will know how to live. We have the ability to communicate wisdom to a world that is completely confused and rebellious against God's ways. We should be able to see the shipwreck coming long before it actually happens. And if you're paying attention to our culture, you can see that there are multiple shipwrecks on the horizon. Welcome to June. For those of you who work in the city, you know this is a difficult month, so-called Pride Month. Well, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The sexual revolution right now is in overdrive. Not only that, worship of politics and politicians seems to me to be at an all-time high in our country, and the idols of consumerism and materialism are worshipped with more devotion every single day. Our ship is heading towards disaster, and Christians should be the ones lovingly making practical observations about the destructive outcomes of bad decisions. We can say what is good and right and true. However, just like Paul, we are usually going to be drowned out. Julius listened not to Paul but to the owner of the ship and to the pilot. In fact, not only did he listen to the professionals, then notice that it also says that the majority chose to go. In other words, it seems to be a vote. This seems to be one of the most democratic moments in all of the Bible. Democracies do not always select the right decisions. Just like Paul, you and I are often going to be in a minority position. And I'm not speaking about politics. I'm speaking about culture. That is normal for the people of God. We are often in a prophetic, prophetic minority in the sense that we will stand for what is good and for what is true and for what is wise. But now let's see what happens when the people fail to listen to wisdom and when they try to make their own way to the end of the island by way of sea. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and they sailed along Crete close to the shore. They're like, yes, this is the first day. The weather has been nice. Let's jump in the boat and let's go. 
But soon, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Now, the boat that he's referring to here is the lifeboat, singular lifeboat that was on this ship. And it wasn't even on the ship. It's something that they would often drag behind the ship. They would pull it far behind them. Sometimes they would even put certain supplies in them or things that they didn't want to have on board with them. And so as they were being blown about by the wind, it was very difficult for them to drag this thing on board. Now, this is important because they go under the Uh, the lee of this small island. So in other words, they're being blocked from the wind by this island. And as soon as they get there, they drag this thing aboard. That will become important because we're going to see this same lifeboat later in the chapter. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Now, of course, we see this in other places in the Bible, most notably in Jonah, where they know they're going to drown. So what do we do? Let's make the boat lighter. Well, what can we throw over? Anything that's not bolted down. Throw it all overboard so we don't sink. Nothing is worth it. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That is a stunning statement. That's one of those things that you should not read too fast. To say that all hope was at last abandoned. The sailors and the passengers alike were fully convinced that there was nothing that could possibly happen to keep them from an inevitable watery grave. This brings us to our next notable difference between how the world functions and how Christians should function. And that is that Christians have hope when the world does not. It is really easy for people in the world to have a happy and exuberant lifestyle when the winds are blowing in a favorable direction. That's easy. But their entire emotional framework is built upon the ebbs and flows of circumstances. The vicissitudes of circumstance are as uncontrollable and unpredictable as the weather. The crew of Paul's ship were very happy when the weather was nice. Hey, let's hop in the boat and let's go. But as soon as the tempest blew in, they were blown about for a few days. They completely abandoned hope. To keep with the theme of nautical terminology and with the theme of the music that we sang today, listen to how Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 describes the way a Christian should function in regards to hope. He says, we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? It means that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have an anchor. You, your soul cannot be shaken. You are held fast to, not by your strength, but by the anchor that holds fast to you. When everything is being blown out about by a nor'easter, we can stand in full confidence and security because we are anchored to the unmovable Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Our position before God cannot change. Our eternal home cannot be taken away from us. Our union with Christ cannot be interrupted. Our connection to the Father cannot be severed. There is literally no such thing as a lose-lose situation for the believer. Brothers and sisters, are you troubled? Are you losing hope? Are you discouraged? Are you depressed? Are you in a funk? Some of you are going through really difficult things right now. Some of you are walking through deep waters, some things that I know about, and I'm sure some things that I do not. Right now, some of you are in a storm. I know it's true, but you have an anchor holding you fast. Jesus is holding you even when the storm blows so hard that you think it's impossible to see the way out. Christian, sail in the lee of that hope. Hold fast to the anchor that holds fast to you. Christians, we do not operate like the world does. We should never lose hope. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, and fearing that we might run onto the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Paul is incredibly perceptive. Paul is incredibly perceptive. It seems as though he is the only one who was on to the scheme that these sailors had hatched. They are ready to absolutely abandon everyone else. And here we've arrived at the third difference between how the world and the Christian should function. A Christian will receive God's plan for salvation. And the world will try to find their own way. Now, I don't think that it's an accidental thing that Luke is utilizing the term saved on multiple occasions in this passage. It appears to me that there is an intentional parallel being drawn between the preservation of physical life and the reception of spiritual life. God already expressed that the entire ship is going to be saved. He has already communicated this to them through Paul that had been given this information through an angelic visitation. All they have to do, all they have to do is remain in the boat. That's it. God will do the rest. But there were some who were unwilling to heed that warning. And they created a plan for their own salvation. Realistically, do you really think it would have been better for them to be in a small boat in the midst of this weather? In the midst of those massive waves? In the midst of those crazy amounts of wind and swells that they were experiencing? Do you think they would have fared any better in a small boat than the big one? They were simply scratching and clawing for any possible avenue to find a way to live. The world does the exact same things in regards to 
receiving eternal life. That's exactly what the world does. God has told us exactly what must be done in order to be saved. God has literally told us exactly what must happen, and it's even simpler than the command to stay in the boat. In fact, it isn't even a command to do anything. In order to be saved, you must simply hear the gospel and believe it. Believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took your entire record of sin and that he paid for it. Every sin that you have confessed, every sin that you have hidden, and even every sin that you have forgotten, Jesus died to save sinners. Then, with the full power of the Godhead, Jesus rose on the third day, proving for all time that his payment was accepted and that salvation has been accomplished. There is no need to look for a rowboat. There's no need to find another avenue to life. There is no other way. God works through salvation on his own terms, not on ours. There's a lot of people that are looking for rowboats. They look different. Sometimes it's a good works system. Sometimes it's penance or confession to a religious figure or prayers to statues or incense or bowing down or restitution or philanthropy or generosity or church attendance or physical baptism. And they say, if I just do these things, I will get to heaven. Those are some of the common rowboats that people have devised to try to convince themselves that they're going to make it. People have done just about everything imaginable to try to convince themselves and others that on the last day, God will receive them. But there is only one way. Paul said, stay with the boat and you will have physical life. Trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of sin and you will have everlasting life. Let's keep moving with verse 33. It says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, I just have to admit, guys, I, I do not identify with these sailors at all. Because when I am stressed or when I am discouraged or depressed, I tend to eat more than I should. Maybe, maybe if I was given a ration of hardtack and salty seafood, my appetite would change. But in their case, it says they had not been eating for 14 days because they continued, as Paul says, in suspense, meaning in suspense of their life, wondering whether or not they're going to make it out. Perhaps they were fasting because it was a form of worship. They were pleading with their gods to pay attention to them. Perhaps they were fasting just from the public meals where they were not going down to the mess hall and eating with all of the other people. And instead, they were just eating some snacks that they had in their bunks. That's a possibility as well. But it does say that they had not taken anything, meaning they had not taken anything from the storehouses for 14 days. And if you have ever worked on a boat, you know that's exhausting labor. These guys were out of energy and they were probably losing their minds. But consider what Paul has told them is about to happen. He told them that they would all make it out alive. That's the first thing. A, they were all going to make it out alive. But B, he also told them that the ship was not going to make it. And C, 
If A and B are true, that means C, you're going to get wet. You're going to get in the water. And if you think working on the boat, moving the sails around, and throwing stuff overboard, if you think that is taxing and laborious, just imagine what it's like when you are fighting the nonstop pressure of gravity to keep yourself alive. As one man once explained it, swimming is the only sport where if you just stop playing, you die. If you get in the water, you got to use every muscle in your body to maneuver you forward towards the next island. These sailors needed food in their bodies in order to swim to shore. And Paul encouraged them and said, eat because Paul really believed what God said was going to happen. Notice he says, because I know what God has told me will come to pass. What he said is true. He never forgets his promises. He will bring us through. This brings us to the fourth difference between the believer and the world that I see in this passage. Simply this, the world only trusts what they are able to experience with their five senses. But a Christian should trust in the promises of God. In September of 2009, just about a month before my wedding, Ashley and I went to Ocean City for the Ocean City Bible Conference in Ocean City, New Jersey. And while we were there, a friend of mine invited us to go out onto a boat on the ocean with him. He invited other folks too, and all of them politely declined. And I should have taken a hint from this that it was an unwise decision to go out on the boat. It was a portent of things to come. And as we went out onto the ocean and away from the shore, I saw these massive dark clouds begin to roll in and the winds started to pick up and the waves started to get much bigger. Now, I grew up going to the lake all the time, but I have never been in the ocean on a boat until this moment and I had never experienced waves like this. And it was at that point that I realized I had no trust in the person that was piloting the boat. In fact, of all the people that I knew at the time, he was probably top five in the categories of most impulsive, most thoughtless, and most reckless. And immediately I thought, I'm going to die. And I looked at Ashley, and she seems to be having a good time. And then I looked back at, at this guy, and I was reaffirmed in my thought, I'm going to die. And at this point, my actions of holding on desperately to the edge of the boat and pleading with the, the captain of the ship to get us back to land before the storm hits were an indication that I did not trust the one that was piloting the ship. Obviously, we made it back to shore. We're alive. But I can tell you with absolute certainty, I would never get into a boat with that guy again. <laughs> and the reason for my fear was very simple. It's because I didn't trust him. It's not that I didn't trust the boat. I did not trust him to get us back to safety. It is really difficult to discern how much faith somebody has until it's tested. In fact, it is really difficult to self-identify how much you yourself have faith in the Lord until he sends a storm to reveal how much you actually trust him to be the captain of the ship of your life. Your faith is going to be most evidently displayed when trials and tribulations abound. And when those billows roll, do you look to him and say, I trust you? Or do you look to him like I did to that guy and say, I'm going to die and begin holding on for dear life? When the sea is roaring and the ship seems like it's about to collapse around you in the ocean, are you actually trusting the Lord? If you are, then you are going to live in accordance with his promises. You're going to trust that what he has told you is true that all things do 
work together for your good and for his glory. Verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought to sa- safely to land. Well, I find it absolutely Incredible that Paul had garnered enough relational capital with the centurion at this point that he was willing to put his own job in the balance by risking the possibility of runaway prisoners. If any one of these guys escapes, his neck is on the line. The only reason any of the prisoners was spared was because God had given Paul favor in the eyes of this unsaved pagan soldier. And by the grace of God, every last one of those 276 people on the boat made it to shore. Turn the page over to chapter 28. Let's continue. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, to clarify, they did not just discover Malta. This was was a province of the Roman Empire. They just didn't know what it was until somebody there explained to them, you're on Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were watching for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. (laughs) Now, The fifth notable difference between believers and unbelievers that is on vibrant display in this chapter is all about how people understand suffering, pain, and disaster. Did you notice that the people of Malta immediately assumed that Paul was bitten by a poisonous poisonous snake because he deserved it? They immediately assumed that this was what they referred to as, quote, justice. Did you see that in your Bible, likely that word justice is capitalized because they were referring to this not as earthly justice, but divine justice. The irony is, this was actually a form of divine mercy. The people of Malta assumed that Paul must have been cursed I mean, think about it. You go through the storm like that for two weeks, and then you go through a shipwreck, and then you die while collecting firewood? Are you kidding me? It's like Bobby Leach, the guy who was the first one to go over the Niagara Falls in a barrel, only to die by slipping on an orange peel. The people of Malta viewed the serpent to be some form of retributive divine justice. They thought this guy must have been incredibly evil. He must have been a sociopathic murderer to get this kind of treatment from God. Dear Christian, the worldly way to view suffering is to assume that God is angry with you, that he hates you, that he is trying to harm you. If you are a Christian, nothing could possibly be farther from the truth. 
It is amazing how quickly people, how quick people are to point the finger at someone else and say, they got what they deserved. But then when something happens to them, oh, this is not fair to me. The reality is that every single person on that ship and every single person on Malta and every single person in this building today deserves to die for our sins. On the merits, every single one of us has been found guilty of death-deserving sin against the holy God of the universe. But God has shown immense mercy and immense restraint. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is long-suffering with the wicked. And the people of Malta here were assuming that Paul was way worse than they were because of the circumstances. They were assuming that he was getting what he deserved. Christian, you will never get what you deserve. Your punishment was all spent on Jesus. Instead, he gives you what is good. And in the moment, it was best for Paul to be bitten by a venomous snake. It was good for that to happen. And this thing dug in. It's not like it just kind of scraped by. It's not like a quick strike and release. It says it literally fastened onto his hand. He was probably flinging it around, trying to get it off of him and into the fire. This should have been a fatal blow, and everyone there knew it. I guarantee that hurts. He was a man just like you or I are men and women. If you get bit by a snake, you are going to feel it. But God used this temporary suffering for a greater purpose. Let's see how, starting in verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Wow. Think of all of the coincidences here. Obviously not coincidence. They're in a storm for two weeks. It just so happens that they blow onto the island of Malta, far away from where they intended to go, exactly where God wanted them to be. And not only that, they land on the beach right next to the governor of the island's house. And so much so that the timing was perfect that when they arrived, the guy's father-in-law is really sick. Perfect timing. And at this point, Paul, it says, heals him And Paul healed everyone else who came to him. Now, it doesn't tell us at this point that Paul ever shared the gospel with any of them. But knowing Paul, knowing the way that he operated, I cannot imagine the possibility that he was not explaining to them where this power came from. He was not giving himself the credit. He was pointing everything to Jesus Christ, meaning that Paul the prisoner became the most revered person on this island. God sent a serpent to cause brief suffering so that Paul would be introduced to the governor and so that Paul would have the opportunity to heal the sick and more importantly, so that Paul would have opportunity to preach the gospel. Jesus Christ was proclaimed. Paul responded like every believer should. He trusted in the providence of God and instead of whining and complaining and moping, he was led into opportunity to shine the light of Christ onto an island that otherwise would likely have not received another missionary for a generation. To close, I want to share with you about one of the best missionaries that's connected with our church. His name is Cornell Muha. Cornell is a great missionary. 
Cornell was injured several months ago by falling from a ladder at work, and his legs were severely broken. Most of you know Cornell. Most of you know him well. He's in rehab still, and he's still improving. When Cornell was first injured, it is fair to say he was definitely discouraged. But every time I have seen him, whether it was in the hospital or at the rehab center, Cornell introduces me to everyone who walks by. He knows all of them by name, and he knows everything about them. And he knows everyone, and everyone knows him. And more importantly, everyone he talks to also knows about Jesus Christ because Cornell understood this was not God attacking him to harm him. It was God placing him in a new position for him to preach the gospel to new people. He never would have walked into that rehab center on his own. He never would have walked into that hospital in his own. He has now met many people he never would have if God had not provided him this experience of immense suffering. God works in mysterious ways. This major trial has allowed Cornell countless opportunities to display gospel, the gospel in his actions, but also to preach it in his words. As a quick update, uh, we have a picture of Cornell from yesterday I can share with you. And he is now standing, praise God. Amen. And strength is coming back to his legs. He is beginning to exercise them more and be able to put weight on them more. And praise God, they're thinking in about six weeks, if everything continues, he may even be able to drive. Praise God, this is incredible improvement. But the thing I want you to see in all of this is that the response of Paul to this suffering of the snake bite and the response of Cornell to the breaking of his legs was very similar. And the response that you have when you experience suffering of various kinds will result either in, self, uh, in, in, in selfishness and self-concern or it will result in praise and glory to the name of Jesus Christ depending on how you respond to your suffering. Final word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is God's desire for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible story of Paul's travels. We thank you, Lord, that you did not give him easy passage. Although it was difficult for him and for everyone on that ship, we thank you, Lord, that this occurred so that you might strengthen him and the people of Malta and even today strengthen us through your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be strengthened and that we would have the mind of Christ and that we would live in a way that brings glory to you and that we would respond in a godly way and not in a worldly way. For, Lord, we know that in every five of these categories we have considered today, we have the opportunity to turn and to operate just like we did when we were in the world. But Lord, I pray that we would be distinct from the world, set apart a holy nation, a people set apart for your own glory. And we pray, Lord, we would act like it. We ask, Lord, that we would operate differently because of your grace in our lives. We pray, Lord, that in all of these ways, our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.